Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the neurotheology of Judaism, which frankly is similar to the neurotheology of any other major world religion. My guest is Dr. Andrew Newberg, who is the director of research at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health, and he is a physician at Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. He is also the co-author with Mark Robert Waldman of How God Changes Your Brain, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, Words can change your brain and why we believe what we believe. He is also co-author with Eugene DeKeely of The Mystical Mind and Why God Won't Go Away. His other titles include Neurotheology, Principles of Neurotheology, and The Metaphysical Mind. In addition, he has co-authored with Dr. David Halpern, who is both a medical doctor and a rabbi of The Rabbi's Brain, Mystics, Moderns, and the Science of Jewish Thinking. Once again, this is an internet interview, and I'll switch over to the internet video now. Welcome, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Oh, thanks for having me back on the program. Look forward to a lot of new good things to talk about. Yeah, you, you know, when I think about the neurotheology of Judaism, I realize that in, in many regards, you're dealing with the same issues that you will find in, in most world religions, because world religions, by definition, include millions of people. And so you're going to get a wide variety of personality styles uh, practicing the religion. Um, in fact, when we first started this particular project and, and wrote the book, The Rabbi's Brain, um, part of what we were striving for was the idea of how can we apply neurotheology to a specific tradition. And to me, this is really just a first step. Um, this is you know, looking at one particular tradition, Judaism, in this context. But uh, as you said, I mean, we can apply the same kind of approach, the same kind of techniques to Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hindu, you know, all the different traditions, and uh, certainly hope that we're able to do that. Uh, I hope that we're able to begin to explore that in a lot of different ways, but um, but it is interesting to see how, you know, the unique qualities of any given tradition and any given group of people um, can be explored through the, the lens of neurotheology, and, and that's part of what makes Judaism kind of interesting because it's, it, you know, it is a relatively small group of individuals. It's a, it's a group of individuals that have existed for thousands of years and, um, and really um, have not incorporated lots of, of new people into the group, so to speak. Um, you know, Christianity, uh, Islam, there's many converts and many people from all different areas of the world who who enter into it. But um, Judaism has this kind of interesting characteristic of not only being a religion, but also an ethnicity. And to be able to to look at that and think about the implications for that uh, is part of why I thought it was a good starting point. 
One of the uh, items that you highlight in your book is the distinction or even the tension between uh, those who uh, favor a sort of a unitary perspective, God is one, all is one in God, versus a, a kind of dualistic perspective focusing on right and wrong, good and bad, uh, life and death. Well, yes, and and uh, you know, again, you know, especially in Judaism, we see this. Um, I think it's it's true, and again, in, in virtually every tradition as well. But in Judaism, um, you know, they're kind of the, the traditional aspects of the tradi- of of the religion are to focus on kind of the everyday life that we lead, and focusing on morality, focusing on. Uh, you know how to be a good person, what to do, what to say. Uh, you know, kind of the the tenets of the of the Ten Commandments kind of thing, which really kind of gives us a very dualistic approach that God is kind of up there and we're down here, and uh, we are are supposed to do certain things. And uh, uh, where we see a distinction, we tend to see in Judaism uh, is in kind of the more mystical elements of it. And again, you know, what's fascinating about every tradition is that those exist. Uh, in Islam, Christianity, and so forth, uh, the idea that people who develop these more deep spiritual experiences, whether through kind of the more standard practices such as prayer or the different ceremonies that are part of the tradition, or a more specifically um, focused meditation and prayer type practice, those are the things that, um, uh, especially in the Kabbalistic schools, and we can talk about this in a little bit more detail, uh, are really striving for this more unitary experience, the sense of being connected to God in a very powerful, very um, unitary connected way that uh, uh, probably does have a great deal of similarities with other traditions as well. Well, are are you suggesting that uh, people who largely see the world in terms of dualities, especially good and evil, I suppose, is the fundamental duality, uh, that their brains work differently than people who tend to see uh, all is one, I am one with everything? Well, on one hand, I think everybody's brain has the ability to do both. Um, you know, we've talked about this a lot in our in our older uh, work. The idea of of sort of the the stories that are part of religions frequently make use of this dual process of the brain. We have what we've referred to as the binary uh, function of the brain, the binary operator that does see right and wrong, good and bad, and then often has different struggles of trying to relieve that tension. Uh, of course, in religion, I guess perhaps the, the, the biggest of the opposites is, is God versus human beings, and how are we as very finite, very limited, uh, very flawed uh, individuals have any hope at connecting to something which is infinite and omniscient and and uh, all knowing and all present and so forth? So, um, you know, how do we how do we bind that together? And the traditions do tend to to help to provide for the ways in which that can happen. Um, I, I suppose you know an answer to your question though is is that some people probably have a predisposition for leaning more towards the holistic side of our brain versus the more dualistic side of our brain. So it does exist in all of us. And so it's not that we have a different brain, but perhaps because of the ways in which our genetics has been set up, um, the experiences that we have had as we've grown up, uh, and even sometimes, you know, the, the fortunate people who have this very intense kind of mystical experience in some way, some very deep spiritual experience will wind up, uh, 
having more of an influence of that holistic process of the brain that kind of overrides the dualism and it actually helps to find a way of bringing those opposites together in some some fundamental way so no longer do we see good versus evil but we see good and evil as part of the universe that god has created and so there is this kind of oneness that becomes part of the way in which people ultimately think uh, even though they have the ability to set up those oppositional concepts would would you say and i know the brain is extremely complex is it is it too much of an oversimplification to suggest that perhaps the right hemisphere of the brain is involved in unitary approaches to reality and the left hemisphere is more involved in uh, the the notion of dualities um you know there's there's certainly some truth to the fact that the different hemispheres of the brain look at things a little bit differently. Um, you know, obviously, it also does depend a little bit on our handedness, um, which is an interesting issue in and of itself. But um, but most people who are right-handed, you know, do have a brain that's set up a little bit like that. Uh, however, as you're also referring to, there are some other aspects of that distinction. So, for example, and, and we talk about this in the rabbi's brain, um, you know, we, we also have kind of a, a frontal lobe heavy versus more of a temporal lobe heavy way of looking at things or parietal lobe way of looking at things, meaning that our frontal lobes help us to, to look at uh, various issues and problems in a very analytical way and in a very um, sort of calculating sort of type of way, whereas our parietal lobe in particular, more towards the back of the brain, helps us to see things more holistically. So if somebody has heightened activity in their frontal lobes, it's possible that that makes them more analytical, more critical, more skeptical. But we also think that there may be other another aspect of the brain, which is not so much the areas of the brain that are involved, but have something to do with some of the neurotransmitters. Um, there's been some interesting evidence to suggest that dopamine is a very important player when it comes to religious and spiritual experiences. And uh, uh, in fact, uh, one study showed that a gene that actually codes for a receptor that regulates dopamine levels in the brain has a lot to do with people's feelings of self-transcendence, that sense of oneness and connectedness. So it's possible that perhaps the frontal lobe balance as well as the dopamine balance are essential aspects of helping people to be critical or open or, you know, holistic versus reductionistic. Because, you know, when you going back to the frontal lobe for a second, when you think about people who are very critical, um, it could lead people down one path of saying, I reject religion completely, being totally critical of the whole concept in and of itself. Or it could be something that we see, you know, certainly in every tradition and a lot in Judaism, um, this idea of really working through the tradition. So they still there's still the overarching belief in God, but there is this um, anal highly analytical way of trying to work through. So, you know, this has certainly been the history of Judaism and the, uh, the you know, v reading and studying the Torah and uh, the Midrash and the Talmud, which are all these highly analytical ways, looking at a, a sentence and trying to extract so much meaning and, and differentiation and, and this whole struggle of trying to understand things, um, which is very prominent in Judaism. So, so again, it, it may be that uh, you know, the, the atheist is the one who 
has strong frontal lobe function and very little dopamine, so that all you know they're critical and they have really no openness to sort of thinking about things um, that would be spiritual. But there could be those people who are deeply religious but still very analytical, and then there are those people who really get away from the whole analytical process and just embrace the experiences. And so uh, you know we might see certain predispositions in the brain. But again, it also has something to do with the, the actual experiences and, and the life path that each person winds up taking. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you and I both share in common that we have uh, Jewish families and we're raised in a Jewish tradition. I recall from my childhood, uh, as I consider myself a pretty secular person, a, a secular spiritual person these days, but uh, as as a child um, being trained in, in the Jewish religion, one point that was emphasized over and over again to me and uh, of course, growing up in Wisconsin in a conservative Jewish community is probably typical for Americans, but not necessarily worldwide Judaism. But the theme I heard over and over again was that Judaism is a very rational religion. You know, again, we can turn to the brain to help us understand that a little bit more. So a little bit of what we just talked about, I think that there is a great deal of of analysis and critical thinking, abstract thought processes that that really that that is kind of a fundamental goal of what the religion is about, that we have this the Torah, which is accepted. But then there's a great deal of analysis that goes on behind that. And um, and and part of what I think, you know, is also interesting. And and I talk about this a little bit in in the book, The Rabbi's Brain, uh, is the idea that um, that part of what is somewhat interesting about uh, the Jewish people is, um, you know, there, there's there's a science seems to fit well into the ways in which Jewish people think. And, uh, you know, the, the fact that I, I, I bring out and, and many, maybe, many people may be aware of this is, is the high preponderance of Jews who have won, for example, Nobel Prizes in, in physics and chemistry about, you know, a quarter of all scientific Nobel Prizes have been won by, by Jewish people. So then the question is, well, is, is there something that ties what people are doing within the tradition to a scientific methodology. And and part of, you know, the answer that we were thinking about was this analytical process within a framework. And that's part of what science is all about. The framework in science is the universe. The framework in Judaism is the Torah and and the tradition. But then there's a great deal of how do we analyze it? How do we discover new things? How do we explore? how How do we ultimately relate this information to something that's usable? And, and so there, there's this parallel pathways that might be very relevant in helping us to understand uh, part of why uh, Jewish people in general seem to have a predilection for, for connecting to science and, and discovering, uh, you know, being creative within it. Um, and again, it's not that other traditions can't do the same thing, but there's, there's you know, again, we want to look at where there are unique characteristics of different traditions as well as the similarities across traditions that might be very helpful in understanding all of ourselves and all of the spiritual paths that we take. Well, that's an extraordinary statistic that you've cited. Uh, since Jewish people represent, uh, according to your book, two-tenths of one percent of the world population, so their representation amongst Nobel laureates uh, in science is uh, roughly 100 times greater than their percentage in the population. I, I would think uh, that's a statistic that would uh, cause a lot of head-scratching. 
Well, exactly. And, and, and I think, again, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating to, to think about what the possibilities are. Um, you know, one of the, the stories that I relate in, in the book was actually um, a story of my uncle, who was a, a pioneer heart surgeon back in the 1950s and 60s. And, uh, you know, but the, the story goes back to when he was a child and they were keeping the Sabbath and he had a problem to work through. He, he was, you know, for those of who, who are not familiar with exactly, you know, the requirements of the Sabbath, one of the things you're not allowed to do uh, is tear toilet paper. And so usually they tear the toilet paper the day before so that everything, you know, you can use it. And um, he forgot that was his job one week and he forgot to do it. And now he's got to figure out a, a creative solution to maintain the Sabbath, but to make it happen, to make it work. And so his creative solution was that um, the, the sink in their in their bathroom was having a little bit of a drip. So he thought, well, if I hold the toilet paper under the drip, it will ultimately the paper will tear by itself, so to speak. He's not doing it. And in that in that way, he's able to maintain the, the the requirements of the Sabbath, but he's also able to utilize the practical nature of what what he needs, which is ultimately to have the toilet paper around. Um, so you know, but that's part of you know that process is what he used as he went forward in his career um, to think about ways. You know, he. Uh, he actually developed a specific clamp that is used in cardiac surgery and vascular surgery. Why? He needed something, you know, he had to figure something out. He had to figure out a way to make something work and literally took, you know, an existing clamp and said, I'm going to bend it this way and tweak it that way so that I can do what I need to do. And uh, and that, that creative process, but also looking for solutions to certain fundamental questions, I think, is is part of what what may help to explain some of that, uh, that very, those very interesting statistics. Uh, I, I suppose for our viewers who are not Jewish, it's probably useful to point out that Orthodox Jews or even ultra-Orthodox Jews who, for example, tear their toilet paper in advance of the Sabbath represent one division or sect within Judaism and, and certainly uh, amongst American Jews and Western Jews in general, not the largest sect uh, at all. Most Jewish people uh, are not observant at that level. You know, looking at Judaism, this this particular topic um, brings up another very interesting neurotheological issue at, that relates to how we think about religion as well as the brain. Um, so, you know, the two are the two terms: religiousness and spirituality. And so, many people feel spiritual, many people feel feel religious, and, and you actually get like a little two-by-two two box that, you know, you have religious and spiritual, and um, and then you can think about, you know, whether or not people are, um, you know, are religious and spiritual, are spiritual and not religious, uh, are religious and not spiritual, or neither. And um, and when you look at the, actually, the population, what you find is, is that about, you know, I'm, I'm estimating here, you know, about maybe two-thirds of people will describe themselves as being religious and spiritual, and that's across all traditions. Um, the, those are people who are religious, uh, or we would typically call religious. Uh, there are about, you know, 10% or so, 10-15% of people who are atheists who will say, I am neither religious nor spiritual. Um, in today's world, uh, as you as you sort of describe yourself, and and I, you know, there's there's a lot of people who say, you know, I, I don't believe in a particular tradition, so I am not religious. But there is a deep spiritual part of myself. Uh, there's parts that help to connect me to the world, and so they are spiritual but not religious. 
And I frequently refer to the secular Jew as the example of the fourth block, which are those people who are religious but not spiritual. And in that context, they they adhere to – there are a bunch of people who will adhere to the Sabbath, will adhere to kosher laws, but don't really believe in God, but don't really you know feel something spiritual uh, as part of their tradition. And from a neurotheological perspective, again – it's fascinating to think about, okay, you know, well, what's going on in the brain? What are the air, what, you know, dopamine and serotonin and frontal lobes? You know, what, what is it that helps one person be both spiritual and religious? Somebody else says I'm religious, but not spiritual. Where, where are the differences and the similarities uh, in terms of the biology of who they are that helps us to understand um, what these different terms mean and how they have a relationship to, to everybody? So again, it, there, there's a universal application uh, in the end, to help us understand it. I, I suppose especially when you consider that individuals who come from the very same family can turn out very different in uh, this regard. Well, that's true. And, you know, this is something that we, uh, again, another very interesting uh, neurotheological issue, um, which has to do with with the development of spirituality or the development of religion within a person. Um, almost everyone is starts out in whatever the tradition or the approach is of your parents. Because when you're three or four years old, you don't get to decide which church or synagogue you, you want to go to. You don't get to decide if you're orthodox or, or reform. Uh, you are what your parents are. And so uh, if they are deeply religious, then you're deeply religious. If you're secular, then you're secular. Uh, and then as you grow up and you begin to develop your own ideas, um, there's some interesting issues and challenges from a brain perspective because first of all those neural connections that formed when you were a child they're they're strong and they're hard to break and so it is difficult for people to change religions you know at some point in their life it, it is a challenge and um uh, you know if you've been raised uh, as a Jewish person, it would be very difficult to shift into Christianity or Islam or something like that because the neural connections that you have developed are so strong. Uh, on the other hand, um, it does happen. I mean, there are times where uh, for a variety of reasons, experiences, you know, differences in brain processes that um, that the tradition that you grew up in just doesn't make sense, uh, isn't consistent with your own personal experiences, doesn't feel right, uh, doesn't evoke the right emotional responses, in which case you do seek uh, new ways of thinking about things. Sometimes people have had a very intense mystical experience or spiritual experience that, that doesn't have anything to do with the tradition that they grew up in, and so they, they head off in a different direction. Um, but that's still a relatively smaller percentage of people. We ran an online survey of people's most intense spiritual experiences and find that maybe you know about 20 to 30 percent of people will shift their tradition in some form or another. And, uh, you know, and one of the, the cornerstones of our book, The Rabbi's Brain, is a survey of rabbis. And, um, and it was interesting even there to see uh, not so much that they obviously they were all Jewish at this point, but it was interesting to see what their original um, uh, denomination was within Judaism and where they spread to. So uh, a lot of people started conservative and then moved into the reform or what or the reconstructionist which is a little bit more of a spiritual perspective on on Judaism for those who are not familiar with it um, you know most of the time the Orthodox kind of stayed Orthodox 
and uh, uh, the reform more or less stayed reform, although some became reconstructionist. But it was that middle ground, that conservative movement that tended to see people moving a little bit more uh, out of that into other denominations. Again, it depends on on you know what makes sense to them and how strongly they want to follow the different rules and guidelines um, that becomes a fundamental part of who they are. One of the most interesting findings uh, that I observed when uh uh, with regard to your survey, is you asked the various rabbis how strong was their belief in God? How, how much did they ever question the existence of God? And uh, I was surprised to see that even amongst the Orthodox rabbis, there was a uh, visible percentage who questioned the existence of God. You know, on one hand, I guess it was heartening to see, you know, the, the, the degree to which um, People within the Jewish tradition will continue to challenge their ideas and their beliefs. Um, certainly, as you mentioned, I mean, more of the Orthodox were, you know, considered themselves to believe in God. Uh, but there were certainly some who had questions about God and God's existence. Um, uh, we certainly saw that much more in the more spiritually oriented denominations, such as uh, um, uh, Reconstructionist rabbis, but um, uh, as a group, and we, we looked at about 160 different rabbis, it, it was quite remarkable. I mean, it was you know uh, at least a half uh, who who had some very serious questions about about the, kind of the fundamental aspect of of the tradition, the monotheistic concept of God. Uh, and again, you know, in in the idea of how can we use this information to expand to even you know the, to the rest of the world? It'd be fascinating to do a similar study uh, of priests, of clergy, of imams, and so forth to see you know where these traditions go, how open they are to challenging different beliefs and other ideas. Uh, and again, I always you know I want to maybe we should have stressed this at the beginning, but there you know to me there's there's never a right or a wrong or a better or a worse. Uh, this is you know what neurotheology is all about is trying to understand. So you know the fact that uh, you know if we found out that uh, that imams and 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 uh, Islam Islamic imams were very uh, you know primarily all believed in God, whereas in Judaism there's more openness to questioning that, it doesn't make one tradition necessarily better or worse. It's just different perspectives on how they begin to look at things. But uh, it's fascinating, certainly, to try to understand what the Jewish mind, what the, the rabbi's brain is thinking about and, uh, and, and how that may teach us something. And actually, one last point about that is we also need to start surveying the people in the congregations and, uh, you know, what are they thinking about and, and how do they look at that kind of a question? Uh, I think it would be fascinating to know whether or not uh, Reform Jews in general, conservative Jews, Orthodox Jews, you know, how do they look at the question of God, God's existence? Uh, how many different kinds of uh, experiences have they had, uh, mystical experiences have they had? Uh, it, there could be some fascinating data in there to be able to continue to explore as we, as we push the whole field of neurotheology forward. Well, one of the unique features that characterizes the Jewish population today is that less than a hundred years ago, uh, there was a Holocaust. Uh, millions of, of Jews were murdered. So it's a, a kind of collective tragedy uh, that, that has affected the psyche and I would even suggest the nervous systems of, of Jewish people. Uh, did you find anything uh, concerning that in your uh, research? 
Well, I guess, you know, certainly uh, there is this issue, as you said, I mean, there, there is this kind of universal trauma that occurred um, there. You know, when we talk about uh, the nervous system and the ways in which we are indoctrinated to think about certain issues and problems that that we have faced as individuals, that the Jews have faced as as a people, um, those, you know, part of what we have learned over time with uh, our understanding of the brain is, uh, you know, this kind of cute concept that neurons that fire together wire together. So if you are constantly being reminded of events such as the Holocaust, uh, which are very scary and 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 very anxiety provoking, then those kinds of feelings can can become uh, really fostered within the person, and that sense of anxiety, uh, that sense of fear, that sense of worry, uh, can become part of the you know that individual or that group's uh, way of thinking about things. Now again, you know, is that a good way or a bad way to think? Well, you know, it, it's sort of like it, it's the question about being paranoid. Um, you know, if you think if everyone really is out to get you, then being paranoid is a good thing. Um, but uh, but sometimes it's not so good if 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 no one really is out to get you. So uh, you know, there is that particular issue. Um, you know, there's been some interesting studies that show a high level of uh, neuroticism. Uh, among Jews, a, a lot of angst and worry, and uh, and so you know that may spill over into the everyday life that uh, the Jewish people have. Um, you know, one of the questions in our survey we asked the rabbis about was about how much they rely on their emotions, how much they rely on their experiences. Uh, and again, I mean, I think part of what was interesting was there was more reliance on thoughts and, and, and experiences than there were specifically on emotions. So perhaps that does have something to do with kind of dealing with these very emotional traumas by trying to turn to a more uh, more thought, more more analytical processes, and then also the experiences that we have to help guide our behaviors going forward. Uh, and in that regard, I think there may be some uh, some value in learning more about just how people in general think about these questions. But but certainly, you know, there, there's no question that um, uh, that all of these kinds of issues and problems that we face uh, are become a part of the, how that brain works. And if the focus becomes more on love and charity and forgiveness, then the brain begins to respond with more love, charity, and forgiveness. And if it's more about worry and fear, the brain responds more with worry and fear. Uh, one of the most popular uh, books uh, uh, written by uh, a rabbi in modern days uh, was uh, Rabbi Kushner's book, uh, uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. I, I think it really struck a chord, and it, it sort of resonates with an ancient theme. You find it in the book of Job. Uh, I think if one looks at Jewish theology going back, let's say, to the patriarch Jacob, uh, there's this notion of wrestling with God, that not accepting things at face value, but struggle seems to be uh, inherent in in Jewish ethics. Well, I think so, and uh, it, you know, the um, that is something that again we we talk about in in the book uh, that we kind of focus in on this issue of religious struggle. Um, you know, on one hand, uh, arguably it is problematic because whenever people are struggling with things, uh, that increases anxiety. It can increase depression. It can get our you know our heart racing and things like that. Uh, so it becomes a stressor which can potentially be problematic. Uh, interestingly, some, some studies have shown that um, people who are dealing with religious struggle 
uh, may it may even shorten their lives to a certain extent. So, uh, you know, that is something to be worried about to, uh, and, and something that we need to think about. On the other hand, um, I think part of what we see within Judaism is this kind of embracing of the struggle. Uh, other traditions like Christianity uh, understand that there is suffering and struggle, but works on trying to get past it. Um, whereas in, in Judaism, there is this kind of embracing of that struggle. And, uh, and I think that, um, uh, again, part of it has to do with some of the, the areas of our brain that uh, help to process through emotional responses, um, part of our limbic system, which is the kind of the emotional centers of the brain, and another very interesting structure called the insula, which is kind of the link between our emotional centers and our higher thought processes as we try to engage these kinds of questions in very, very deep ways. So, um, you know, part of, uh, and again, I think this is also part of how we start to think about uh, the Jewish mind and thinking about science and, and kind of continuing to always struggle and try to find answers to questions that can be very difficult. But but it is interesting to see that uh, how Judaism sort of embraces that struggle. And in some sense, by embracing the struggle, tries to turn it into something that is a more positive process. Uh, whether it ultimately is or not, I guess it does depend on each individual. But, uh, you know, these these would be the kinds of studies that would be something that we could look at going forward to kind of, you know, look at what's going in the brain when somebody challenges themselves and tries to think about uh, these big questions. But uh, but it is it's a fundamental part of what Judaism is about. Uh, as you mentioned, it's it's part of the Jewish theology. It's part of kind of the Jewish mindset, and uh, and trying to trying to see those different areas of the emotional centers and the cognitive centers of our brain and how they relate to that struggle uh, is also, I think, very important for us to understand. Now, I know this is getting a little bit far afield from what you cover in your book, but it seems to be an important uh, neurological fact that uh, uh, the average IQ of, of Jewish people is significantly higher than the population at large. And uh, I've often wondered, and I think other scholars have speculated that in part this is no doubt due to cultural factors, but it may also be due to all of the persecutions and the sense that the less intelligent, uh, less uh, aggressive, perhaps, uh, members of the Jewish population were murdered, and so they didn't have offspring. Right. Well, uh, you know, that that's certainly, there, there's some very interesting uh, evolutionary or anthropological questions that come up about this. Um, you know, we were talking a little earlier about uh, a gene that codes for the dopamine areas of the brain. Um, one of the uh, that has something to do with people's sense of religiousness. But again, you have, a, as you said, you have a very small group of individuals who have been through some very dire circumstances. And so there, there probably was a bit of a, uh, you know, a Darwinian process going on here that um, that only only the, the strongest ones tended to survive, the ones that were clever enough, resilient enough. Um, so there was, you know, those kinds of external pressures can have an impact on on any uh, group of individuals or any group of beings. Um, you know, one one thing, one thought I had as as we were getting into the into the writing of the book, um, you know, there's perhaps the most interesting lineage genetically has to do with Kohanes, and and I happen to be a Kohane. Uh, for those people who are not familiar with what that means, the the co the Kohanim were the um, sort of the 
the high priests of, of the of the temple back in you know two thousand years ago. Uh, there were three different groups of of, of Jewish people, um, and uh, and the Kohanes were were the the people who were the the high priests and, and really took care of the temple. So um, that lineage is passed on father to father, which is very interesting and uh and actually the genetic analyses of Kohanes today show a great deal of similarity so that has actually occurred now what's interesting about that is that primarily that would be relegated to the y chromosome the chromosome that makes men men and um uh, unfortunately there's not a lot of bringing processes that are attached to the y chromosome so i did try to figure that out a little bit and see if there were some things now again we we don't know what every gene in our bodies does yet so it is certainly possible that there's certain aspects of the y chromosome that that code for toughness analytical thinking you know uh, uh you know being street smart kind of thing uh, we don't know, but um, but it is interesting again to sort of use this neurotheological approach that blends neuroscience and genetics and evolution along with the religious and spiritual uh, attitudes that people have to see if we can figure that out and to see if we can understand. Um, whether there is an actual genetic predisposition to thinking in certain ways, whether it is cultural, uh, and how much nature and how much nurture there is in, in all of these things. And again, you know, yet again, how does this apply to other traditions as well? Um, when we look at Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, and so forth, you know, what are, what are their cultural leanings? Uh, are there certain genetic processes that might lean one towards a particular set of beliefs versus another? Um, you know, how do we start to look at all of that? When I think of neurotheology in Judaism, an, another striking fact is, is that the, uh, the science of neurology and related sciences, psychotherapy, for example, uh, many of which seem to be derived almost directly from ancient Jewish tradition. Freud, for example, who developed the science of dream interpretation, seems to have drawn uh, quite a bit from Talmudic thinking. There is this uh, ability, you know, all, all traditions, but again, especially in Judaism, this notion of sort of the human psyche and what we do and how we operate. Um, and one of the things I've always argued is that, you know, part of the the power of the Ten Commandments is that it even says this in the Torah, basically, that that. These are not things. These are things that we can do. These are not things that are so beyond our ability, and that is very important. There's this realization of what our mind, what our brain can do, uh, how it operates, how it works, uh, the importance of how we think versus how we behave, and uh, and so uh, as you mentioned, you know many. Uh, psychiatrists and psychologists throughout time, uh, and, and especially in the modern day, have developed a lot of these psychotherapeutic concepts based on the ideas that come out of the the Bible, the Torah, and thinking about our emotions, our thoughts, our feelings, our experiences, and uh, and how that can relate to uh, a better sense of well-being, a sense of flourishing as individuals, and uh, and hopefully you know that is something that can be used to to take not only Jewish people, but but all people to better levels of, of mental and, and even physical well-being. My sense, for example, when I study the Torah and uh, the Jewish patriarchs, it reads to me like a, almost like a psychotherapeutic description of dysfunctional families and, and, and how you deal with that in, in ancient times. 
Yeah, well, you know, I think it, it, there is a bit of a roadmap for that. Um, you know, there, the, the different stories, um, especially when you get into all of the analysis of what happened and how it happened and what was okay and what was not okay, there are kind of layers upon layers of, of moral aspects, uh, of, uh, as you said, sort of familial uh, interactions, what's okay, what's not okay, uh, how we deal with our own, the recognition of our own limitations as people. And uh, and how we kind of get beyond that. Now, of course, these you know this was all written two thousand you know five thousand years ago, whatever uh, the stories originate, um, long before we had brain imaging. But uh, but again, I think there's this recognition of the emotions of human beings. The you know the the idea you know again in the, in the commandments of of not coveting you know of not being jealous. Um, why? Because being jealous is a part of who we are, and and certainly a very fundamental part of family dynamics. And so, you know, trying to get people beyond that, trying to find a way of helping people to uh, to, to figure out more effective ways of working and dealing with each other uh, becomes very very important. And and as you said, I mean, you know, one of the one of the central themes of the of the Torah uh, is how various kind of uh, pieces of wisdom and knowledge and, and even revelation uh, comes to us in dreams. And so the idea that that we can, you know, we can derive something from our dreams as Freud so frequently looked at and, and others as well. You know, how do we use our, our conscious thoughts, our unconscious thoughts, and how do we, uh, you know, can we look at that in a, in a very detailed way to, to figure out how we better mankind, how we better ourselves as, as individuals? Now, you know, another approach to um, the neurotheology of Judaism uh, was described by a, a physician, probably a Jewish physician, Leonard Schlein, in his book, uh, The Alphabet Versus the Goddess, in which he suggests that the Bible, being one of the earliest uh, literary works ever written using an alphabet, caused a change in the way we use our brain, as opposed to, for example, Egyptian hieroglyphs, which are more pictorial. And when you combine that with the Jewish proscription against graven images, it, it seemed like uh, the rise of Judaism itself uh, was emblematic of a, a, a big change in the way humans began using their brains in a in a more analytic, uh, linear fashion. Well, I think so. I mean, there's there's always been kind of a of a continued development uh, of the you know the human brain. And, and perhaps even more specifically, uh, sort of human thought. I mean, I, I don't know how much the human brain itself has, has changed from an evolutionary perspective over the last, let's say, 10,000 or maybe even 50,000 years. But that ability, as you mentioned, with regard to language and especially languages that we can really utilize and expand upon to help us understand what we're thinking and describe that to others – uh, really becomes fundamental to the development of different thought processes. I mean, it's, it's the beauty of humanity is that I don't have to reinvent calculus. You know, we don't have to reinvent calculus at every generation. Um, we just needed Isaac Newton, and now we all learn it in school. And similarly with the Torah, you know, we didn't, uh, people didn't have to think about all these questions de novo. They could start with what had been done and develop from there. And through that kind of a process, I think, does allow for the brain and for uh, for the person uh, to be able to think about things and and keep advancing our ideas and advancing who we are as people as as a species as a group uh, that um, you know with with I think 
what what every tradition really has as its sort of fundamental goal, which is how do we as human beings get to that next level? How do we how do we um, transcend ourselves to become something greater than who we are? To connect to something greater than who we are? And uh, I think that you know again when you kind of look at every tradition uh, in kind of a perennialist fashion, the idea that that is a kind of an ultimate goal. Uh, you know whether you're trying to achieve Buddhist enlightenment, whether you are trying to follow all the rules of the Sabbath, whether you are trying a you know to get into a mystical union with God. Um, they're all about us trying to get to something beyond what we are, get to something better than we are. And through those kinds of processes and the development of the, 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 the uh, uh, language and, uh, and the ability to describe things, I think, as you said, I mean, that, that is a fundamental part uh, of how Judaism has developed itself and how it helped to, uh, helped to progress the rest of humanity along the way. In my position as an interviewer, and I've been doing interviews like this now for more than four decades, uh, one of the things I've observed is that when I interview people uh, who are Sufis or yogis or Buddhists or metaphysical philosophers of, of different types, uh, people exploring exotic religions, a very high percentage of them are Jewish, actually. Uh, there, for example, there's even a category I hear people refer refer to Jubus. Well, I, I think uh, one of my observations is that more Jews seem to be leaving the religion in the wake of the Holocaust than ever before in thousands of years of Jewish history. Uh, you know, obviously there are a variety of different forces. Um, that's certainly one of them. And, and the concern that, that people have about, you know, anti-Semitism in the world and the possible, you know, where, where that takes us. Um, you know, uh, Jewish people are, are subject to the same forces that are affecting everybody these days and the, you know, travel and the ability to spread families out and the internet and all that. So we have access to so much more. We have the ability to interact with people of different cultures and traditions so much more. And with that process of Judaism of sort of constantly questioning and exploring and so forth, it perhaps is not a surprise that people go out and explore other avenues towards spirituality, uh, you know, whether it's Buddhism uh, or, or Christianity or uh, various secular philosophies. Um, you know, it would certainly make sense, I think, that there would be a great deal of exploration in trying to continue to further one's own ideas, one's own identity, which is uh, kind of a fundamental part of what Judaism is all about. So, so I think that um, that it does. That there is a certain degree of sense that it makes. I mean, I, I think that as time has gone on, people have also left. Uh, the, the Catholic Church, uh, obviously, especially with a lot of issues that have come up today. Um, and uh, and so, you know, in a general way of speaking, people tend to be moving away from some of the traditional religions uh, and looking for something more spiritual. But uh, as, as we tried to argue uh, in one of my first books, Why God Won't Go Away, um, there, there, there's always this human need for making that connection and for transcending the self and for uh, trying to connect with something larger and greater than the self. And so whether one does that in a secular manner, uh, through art, through music, through nature, through science, uh, or through the, the well-winnowed traditions of Christianity and Judaism and Islam and so forth, um, they are all different pathways towards a similar kind of goal, I think. And it's just a matter of how people proceed down those pathways. But that, to me, is also what neurotheology is, is about. You know, where are the similarities? Where are the differences? Where are the unique characteristics? Uh, and how do we use all of that information uh, to ultimately help kind of lift humanity up 
to this next level, to this next sort of human enlightenment, if you will, that, uh, you know, if, if neurotheology has something to say about it, it may be some combination of the scientific and the spiritual uh, or, you know, the, the scientific and the religious. But we have to figure out what are those what are those approaches that can be taken and um, and which ways wind up being the most effective for everyone. There is a segment of the population I've I've encountered. Uh, they call themselves uh, traditionalists, and uh, they tend to think that uh, if you really want to go on a, a mystical path, if you want to find union with God, the best way to do it is to affiliate with one of the ancient traditions: Judaism, Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, even. But one of the religions that's been around for thousands of years, rather than uh, some newfangled fad. Uh, is is there neurotheological reasoning behind that line of thought? Well, I think so. Um, you know, it's. Uh, I, I would say it's, it is a reasonable suggestion to be made. I mean, these are traditions that have stood the test of time. Um, they have uh, developed very detailed um, and and in general very effective. Uh, means for getting to these kinds of experiences, um, you know, thousands, if not millions, of people over time have have gone down those pathways and feel that they have worked. Um, so, so I think that you know, for any given individual who is now embarking on their own journey, uh, it is a reasonable suggestion to make. Let's look at what already is out there instead of reinventing the wheel. Now. You know, there are people who would say, oh, okay, you know, that does work. Uh, gee, you know, uh, I've now read up on what Buddhism is and that makes sense to me. Or I've read up on Judaism and that makes sense to me. Uh, on the other hand, um, people may feel that those very doctrinal approaches are, are too static and, and really, even though they have worked for thousands of years, um, may no longer have that level of relevance. And so they need to find new ways of exploring them and, and to try a, a new fad of some kind. Um, what I always encourage people to do is, is to look at existing approaches, um, which we seem to know work, but, um, but to recognize that there isn't a one-size-fits-all. And, uh, and I, think, I think probably the most important thing is for people to um, seek a path that, um, that, that does resonate with who they are. So um, if there is some new fad or some you know, new approach, uh, you know what? It, what is the basis of it? Um, does it make sense to you? Is it taking you in, in strange directions that don't feel comfortable? Um, or and and I think you know at that point you know talk to, talk to the leaders of that group, talk to teachers of that group, and see if it makes sense to you. Uh, challenge them and see if they're you know are they defensive or do they embrace challenges and questions and so forth. Um, and so perhaps through all of that process. Uh, you can try to ultimately find a path that works best for you. Um, you know, uh, try it for some reasonable period of time. But uh, ultimately, if that doesn't seem right, then there are hundreds, if not thousands, of other approaches. But but I do agree with the the general concept of you know start with things that we already know and start with things that have a track record of working, and then going from there. You know, one of the most fascinating aspects of, of your book, and I, I attribute it probably to your co-author, Rabbi uh, David Halpern, who's also a medical doctor, is, is there are citations probably to the thoughts of dozens, if not a hundred or more rabbis. And as I began reading through it, I, I realized all of these rabbinical commentaries, some going back thousands of years, others more recent, uh, 
it read in a way like the history of philosophy, like looking at the ancient Greek thinkers on, on so many different topics. But I, I realize if you don't get a rabbinical education, you're not going to learn about it because the uh, thinking of the Talmudic rabbis is simply not taught anywhere else. You won't get it in a philosophy course. You have to go to rabbinical school. <laughs> Well, I mean that that was part of the the great you know fun for me of of doing this book with with David uh, Halpern because I, as you said I mean I didn't get this kind of training when I was I, I was I was raised in a in a Reformed Jewish household and and we were not particularly religious we were not you know we didn't follow uh, the Sabbath or or kosher rules or anything. Um, but it is it is my you know tradition that I come from and so to to get all of that and to hear all of that. Uh, and to sort of you know see the stories and the analyses was you know that that was fascinating for me. Um, in fact, that's part of why I was very excited to include it in the book because um, you know part of how we kind of conceived of it as you know where is the science on this, but how does it tie very deeply into the various ideas and thoughts and theological concepts and philosophical ideas. Uh, throughout the ages, uh, again, always trying to tie in a little bit about what's going on in the brain. If we think about the emotional processes of a given question about morality, uh, you know, if we have a moral question uh, about not coveting, uh, you know, thy neighbor's, uh, you know, uh, thy neighbor, um, you know, what does that mean? You know, how does that happen? How do we think about that? What are the cognitive processes? Uh, what are the emotional processes? How does that convert into something behavioral? Where do we find the basis for these things? Um, so, you know, there's so many different fascinating facts uh, and ideas that have come up over the thousands of years. Uh, and again, this is true of, of all traditions as well, but so, so exciting for me to be able to share that and to explore that and always kind of tying it back to, well, what, but what's also going on with the brain and how do we think about these things with this new perspective that we've never had before? You know, as I read your material in neurotheology, uh, the impression I get is that uh, you're laying out long lists of questions that have yet to be answered that uh, people maybe up until recently never even asked uh but it, it's sort of like a research program that may take hundreds of years to actually fulfill because I presume there's not a lot of funding for these studies. Well, well that, there is a tr that's true. Um, you know, the, the good news is, is that hopefully I've got enough stuff to work on for the next uh, 30 or 40 years of my life, or at least until, until I can't work on it anymore. Um, and you're right. I mean, I, I think the future is very bright on one level uh, in terms of neurotheology. And I'd love to see, you know, more young people coming up both in the sciences as well as in the uh, rabbinical schools and cler cler uh, the different clergy, uh, you know, priests and, and imams and so forth as they develop their their uh, uh, in, in their way um, and, and theological schools and so forth. Um, philosophy, psychology, you know, all of these areas can contribute to where we go. Uh, as you said, perhaps the most uh, the biggest challenge, uh, although this is true in, in regular science as well, is, is getting funding. I mean, it's hard to get funding to study how to treat cancer these days or how to treat uh, heart disease. Um, so uh, it, it's always a challenge. Uh, I guess, you know, the one nice thing about um, theological questions is that there's not a lot of cost involved in studying that. Uh, but then as soon as you begin to bring in brain scans or, or you know, some kind of neurological analysis, 
that's where costs start to go up a little bit. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I think part of why I get very excited, very passionate about neurotheology is the idea that there are so many different questions, there are so many different approaches, so many different ways of looking at these issues that um, that they're really you know the sky really is the limit um, in terms of uh, where we can go and. Uh, and it ranges from very practical questions looking at, as we've talked about already, you know, psychology and helping people to resolve problems and family relationships to understanding the brain and how our consciousness uh, intersects with these very profound experiences to the esoteric, the philosophical questions about why good things, you know, bad things happen to good people and, and, and why there is suffering in the world and what is God, um, you know, and, and I guess the fundamental question that has driven me has always been, what, you know, what is reality? What is real? And how do we know that? And uh, I, I hope that uh, neurotheology can lay out that, uh, that path towards answering those questions in some way. Uh, and, uh, and whether that's something that I will be able to figure out or uh, my uh, 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 my uh, predecessors or, or uh, the people who come after me go, um, uh, you know, that, that there's just so much for us to think about. Um, actually, predecessors was the wrong word. <laughs> <laughs> for the people who, who will come after me, uh, you know, to uh, to be able to explore these questions in, in great detail. And, um, and I guess that's also part of what religious traditions are all about. I mean, these started 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 years ago. And they continue today as, as people continue to engage them. And uh, and I guess, you know, all of us will kind of move the whole process forward in hopefully some very exciting ways. Well, Dr. Andrew Newberg, it's been a pleasure uh, having this conversation with you. Uh, I, I think I've learned a few things, and I, I hope our viewers have as, as well. And uh, more than anything, I realize there's so much more to learn. Absolutely. There always is. Uh, that, to me, is the heart of neurotheology. I call it the passion for inquiry, always asking the questions. And as long as we keep asking questions, I, I think we'll, we'll always keep moving towards answers. But, uh, but those answers are often very challenging, and, and we've just got to be patient and uh, maybe work together a little bit better towards, towards getting to them. And, and this, you know, the neurotheology, I think, is a way of helping people appreciate those different uh, all the different traditions, not just Judaism, but all the different traditions uh, help us to see the similarities, uh, help us to see the differences, help us to find ways of appreciating those those distinctions and uh, and hopefully finding a way to bring us to a new a new era, a new enlightenment uh, in which all people can can uh, participate in in the ways in which we move ourselves forward and, and uh, to seek something better for all of us. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you so much, too. 